Welcome to Jersey Smarties with your host, Sam and John. Welcome to the big show. Yeah, you're looking awfully blue today. Yeah, I put on my uh, part-time shirt. I'm a staff. Yeah. Yeah, Walmart, right? I do. I go there. I told you, I go there sometimes, and when I'm walking around with the family, people come up and ask me where certain things are, and I direct them to God knows where. Only after the third or fourth time when they approach me is when I say, listen, I really don't work here. And they, they, you, they don't seem to be happy about that. You walk out the front doors, it's right to your left. It's <laughs> right to the left. <laughs> right. The, the poor one guy, he's like, he's walking with a, with a cane and he's like, I went over there and I couldn't find it. And I said, oh, it's on the other side of the store. Go all the way down over there. It's in the corner, the far left corner. And he goes all the way there. And we were up by the rest. He goes, he goes, sir. I still can't find it. I said, I'm just kidding, man. I don't work here. And he goes, what the (laughs) hell's wrong with you? (laughs) And my wife just turned to me and she said, what is wrong with you? And I said, that's that's an ongoing question my whole life. So here we are. I once had uh, someone come up, do you work here? And I said, no. And then I turned around and I just went in the aisle and started like fixing stuff like I work there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Or if yeah. you stand by the self checkout and you go, sir, that 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 one right there, yeah. and it's closed. Start directed him. Yeah. yeah, and it's closed, and he's like, it, 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 the red light's on, and I'm like, sir, just it, follow what I'm telling you. <laughs> and they stand there for like 15, and I walk away, and the other lady comes in, she goes, sir, it's closed, and he goes, the other guy told me it's open. So it, yeah, a little fun. Yeah. Got into it. So probably one of the best uh, things when I was a kid one of my dad's friends came by one time to to drop something off so nobody was home except for me I think I was like in fourth grade and this guy comes over and he says uh you know my dad worked in the United Nations so these guys were all these sophisticated people right so he comes and he says hey uh I'm trying to get to the Holland Tunnel do you know how to get to it do I follow those blue H's and I said yeah (laughs) that's where you go and um, (laughs) like 40 minutes later and back then, if you remember, you like had a call from a payphone, right? And there was no cell phone. So he calls up the house, and he's like, he's like, hello? I said, yes. He goes, uh, listen, are you the, the, the kid that I uh, spoke to when I got there? And I said, uh, who's this? And he said, remember I was asking you about the Holland Tunnel? He goes, I've gone to every hospital in the area, <laughs> and I oh can't find the Holland Tunnel. And I said, uh, you got the wrong number. And I hung up on him. Of course, he complained to my dad, and my dad's like, was that you? And I was like, Dad, I would never do that. <laughs> terrible, terrible. Uh, well, today we got a special guest on our show. Um, I'm actually privileged to say that uh, she come, She does a lot of different things. She's a, a massage therapist for cancer patients. She's a hypno, hypnotherapist. Yes, that's we're going to get into that. Um, she's a permaculture farmer, which I think I know what that means, but she's going to explain it. Repeat that again. A what? Permaculture. I can't even hear you. A what? Permaculture. Perma? Yeah. Okay. That's, that's what the cue card says. (laughs) (laughs) Just want to make sure. And and actually, you know, she, I know English is your second language. That's why I want to make sure. My first language. I told you anything that ends in an A is Italian. I, it's an, I speak Italian. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if a country ends in the day, it's it'll That's it's it. Italy. Yeah. yeah. Um she also is uh and she always kind of skates over this, and I actually I think it's a pretty big achievement. She's actually a published author with her book uh named Apart. Uh Jen Jennings is on the show today. Hello, Jennifer. Hey, welcome, Hello. welcome, welcome. 
This is awesome. But most of all, I think your biggest achievement is being my friend for 30 years. Well, you did make it kind of easy on me because there was a while where I didn't see you. Yeah. And, uh, that yeah, that's called jail. Jen, yeah. my, my deepest condolences. I'm sorry yeah. to hear that. <laughs> so how are you doing over there? How's the farm going? What's going farm on? Is, farm is great. Um, we are like in prime produce time. So we've got uh, berries are still coming in. We're still getting elderberries and blackberries and raspberries. Korean peaches are ripening up, and my fresh batch of what? chickens. Num hold number on, one hold in on. Korea. Yeah, I was going to say. Number one, Korean peaches. This is why we're number wow. one. Asian pears. There's the That's connection. Right. My goodness. Finally found how we got into South Korea. Thank you, Jen. Yeah, you're thank welcome. you, Jen. Jen, you're the reason why we have a hashtag South Korea. Yep. <laughs> So, well, if you want me, I'll, I'll go ahead and make that phone call to Dennis Rodman, and you could be number one in North Korea. Yes. With a little, well, you know. we are. I mean, it's it's the Koreas in general. Um, so tell me <laughs> what you do farming-wise that's different than um, stereotypical farming. Um, well, permaculture farming is like um, – I said it it's right, like Sam. You did. Yeah. And permaculture actually kind of stands for permanent agriculture or permanent culture. Mm -hmm. So it's a way of making sure that uh, we meet human needs without destroying the planet and actually kind of leave the place better than we found it. So it's closing the loop on all the recycling. It's, uh, you know, finding natural methods for dealing with pests instead of things like you know, BT and your usual toxic stuff, not using any Roundup or anything like that. So it's... Oh, that was a dig. <laughs> Maybe. I actually thought you were going to say, and we're finding Nemo. Right. <laughs> yeah. Finding Nemo. Um, I, You know, it's... I, I know you say, I actually, um, I use the salt, vinegar, and dish soap mixture. It's not as good as Roundup, by the way, Sam. Not at all. But, if you um, follow it with a weed burner, sometimes it is, and you have to do it on a hot day. What's a weed no... burner? Weed burner, you know, like it's a, a burner. Weed torch. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So I'll just hook I'll it up to a little propane tank, walk around with it. That's right. Now you're you're. I know you you do um you you harvest a lot of berries. You, you obviously have pigs on the farm. Um, we have had pigs. We don't have pigs this year. This is the off year for livestock because I needed a break. Okay. And that's a lot of pork. That's no, you still you're still giving us pork. Two three hundred and fifty pound pigs is a lot of pork. Yeah, yeah. So, I will yeah. um, I'll hold back for my <laughs> off air. I'll say something to you. Yeah. Um, but uh, what's what's next in your plans? I know you you've had this uh, big plan for the farm. What's going to be the next thing that you're going to be uh, growing out of there? Um, cannabis? I guess it's really cannabis. Cannabis. Did yeah. you say cannabis? Yeah. Yes. No, yeah. unfortunately, no. Dude, you um, guys would be super rich. Well, you you also like it's not like the old days. It's highly regulated. Weed in your closet. You know? Right. It's right. Not, no, it's just there's a science now, and because now cannabis is being regarded, um, and as it should be regarded for its medicinal qualities, um, which. Humans have been using for thousands of years. In fact, Otzi, the uh, ice man that was found on the mountain, uh, I believe in the Italian Alps, 
he had Italy, you know, cannabis on him. Yeah. And that's because they were using it even back then. So it's it's nope. been a medicine for a long time. It's nope. just he, the 1950s. Jen, he know? used it because he had an Italian wife. I had an Italian mother. I know how that goes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> um, I think Otsi had it easier than us. Yeah, Otsi had it easier. But let me, um, I, I mean, I, I, I'm very intrigued with your massage therapist for cancer patients, was it? Not just for cancer patients. I do work in conjunction with a hospital system. Um, and I do more um, complementary health uh, classes. So I do fitness and nutrition classes. And we talk about everything from, you know, brain nootropics to dealing with your chemotherapy nausea. The patients can be in treatment or recovering or whatever. It's it's open to the hospital's uh, patients. And... Um, it's extremely satisfying, extremely satisfying. I used to actually be in the infusion room while they were getting their chemo prior to COVID. Um, I would do foot and hand reflexology while they were in the infusion chair and uh, make my rounds from chair to chair and help you with your anxiety. Or if you are stage four and this is probably your last hurrah, maybe we would talk a little bit about it. I wasn't in behavioral health. Um, however, I've had many, many, many years of uh, human interaction where you have to have a, a special mindset to work in the trenches like that in cancer care. Because there are, you know, you have a conversation with somebody every week and then one week they're not there anymore maybe yeah that's got to be or maybe tough. they get better and you never see them again because they got better so it's it's a different it's not easy to do it was easy for me but i think that's because i have kind of more of a buddhist type mindset to it you know it's like it's all part of the cycle of life so, so. the last few people we've had kind of join us on um uh, on, on the podcast of people that have worked in behavioral health and um, I've been working in behavioral health for a while. It, it does take a toll on you no matter, I mean, how much you may be connected to your, your spirit or your faith or anything else. How do you readjust after taking care of somebody? Cause you connect with them. I mean, they're going through a significant event in their life and you're there to kind of bring some peace and, some comfort and uh, then they pass away. How do you then kind of reset after that and go back in knowing you're going to be connecting with somebody else that possibly is going to have the same outcome? I am fortunate in the fact that I can compartmentalize pretty well. Um, that's something that I thought, you know, I used to think, oh, everybody can do that, but apparently not. I don't take anything personally. So if they're having a not good day and they're snapping at me, I completely empathize with them because I don't know what it's like to be a cancer patient. Fortunately, I've never had that opportunity to join that club. Um, but it is something that you have to understand that their paths, your paths may walk together side by side for a little bit, but you don't walk side by side with everybody all the time with everybody that you meet. So my goal is in that brief or long period of time is to make sure that I am a value add to you um, in as much as I can be. And that's my 
service. Like that is what keeps me um, happy in a job that would usually not keep a lot of people happy. It can really burn you out. There's a lot of burnout in medicine. You know and, this. And and the it, one thing I do notice about you too, Jen, is you also take the philosophy of that time with them. Like you're happy for that time. If it ends three in three minutes, then you were happy for those three minutes. Like you have that type of mindset, you know, and you don't take anything personally, unlike people like me who take everything personally. So. <laughs> You've gotten better. Yeah. <laughs> Remember, I've known you a long time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it is truly, it's a gift to be able to meet somebody where they are and you have to meet them where they are because when they are, you know, they're in the chair, their hair is falling out, they're upset because they can't bring in all their family members, which, you know, when COVID happened, I was deemed non-medical, non, non-essential non medical. So mm -hmm. I wasn't a nurse, I wasn't a doctor, therefore I wasn't to be in the hospital at all because with COVID, everything, the doors were shut. So if you got diagnosed with cancer, when COVID was going on, and COVID is still going on, by the way, um, when it was really bad during the pandemic, you had to walk that path all by yourself. You couldn't have your person with you. You couldn't have your spouse with you. You had to face all that alone. Fortunately, my people never had to do that because I was always there. The nurses were always there. There was always a friendly face. And the hospital system I worked in really focused on complementary alter you know not alternative health but complementary health right, because they right. realize that you you know your care doesn't stop when they remove that medicine from your port and you walk at the door so how did you um get started in that how did you like go there a super sweet gig um <laughs> yeah actually i had um i was at the time, I was during the recession when nobody had disposable income and I had a day spa, which needed to be kept afloat with a regular paycheck. I went and got a regular job while my former husband ran my day spa. And that job was teaching at a tech school, teaching massage. And the tech school was connected to this hospital and they would bring their students in to do chair massage, uh, complimentary chair massage for the patients. Right. And um, over time, I got to know the director of that program, the complementary medicine program there. And when an opportunity came where um, she could bring me in with some other massage therapists to work in her program as contractors. And um, let's see, it just kind of went from there. I mean, I've been with this system for over 15 years, I think, at this point. Yeah. It's got to be 15 minutes. Yeah, I think it's probably 15 years. Um, and over time, you know, I have moved through several of the different um, classes that they have offered. I've taught classes. I've done service, um, either doing the foot reflexology by the chair side or doing chair massage outside of radiation because you got to be there every day for 16 weeks or whatever. And that's kind of miserable. So, you know, that was kind of my goal. So I was, well, you know, I'm the cancer cheerleader. That's what I do. Good for you. Right. Good for you. There you go. John and I have a dear friend that um, her partner 
got diagnosed with cancer. She went through the whole process, you know, lost her hair. Um, they thought that they got it. And uh, it came back a lot more aggressive. And um, I, it's, it's toll taken on everybody. Her care providers also felt very broken by it. And mm-hmm. it's probably one of the toughest things. Um, it, John, I was telling John this a couple of days ago. I, I feel like every time we're on a podcast, there's a connection with every single person that we've spoken to because I've had like some experience in dealing with that. So for a while, I, um, I was a certified grief and bereavement counselor, and I used to teach on death and dying and put scenarios in place. And um, I, I just remember, like, when I first got into it, it was, you kind of think it's going to be pretty easy. You talk, talk the facts, right? Like, hey, you know, this is what you're going to go through. And it's nowhere <laughs> near that because no. it's that human element it- that you, you could never appreciate and as as long as I've been doing this, you know, um, I've had people that have come in and they, they have an advanced directive and, uh, you know, a DNR in place. Uh, mm-hmm. And literally, I've had people say things to me like, please do whatever you could to save me. Mm-hmm. And it breaks your heart because the family and everyone kind of is like, oh, my God, what does that mean for us? Right. Because. Mm-hmm. The longevity of the illness and the disease that these folks are going through takes a toll on everyone around them. So that's why, again, Jen, I, I give you a lot of credit for doing that stuff. It's it's unbelievable. It's truly heroic to go back in there after you've lost one of your patients and still have that that outlook of, I'm going to do my best to make this person's day a little bit better. So really kudos to you on that. Yeah. Well, I'm just I'm just a person just like anybody else. But I will say that I'm when I see what the nurses and the doctors deal with, I never want to be the person to give the poor person in that chair the diagnosis like you have cancer. Yeah. Like that is there are more patients with PTSD simply from that moment mm-hmm. hearing that you've got cancer. And then the question is, is it stage one, stage zero, stage four? operable, inoperable, you know, is it in your bones? Is it in your brain? Did you light up like a Christmas tree on your PET scan? I mean, all these things are crushing to mm-hmm. a And you have to being. wait for each individual level to happen. And it's, it's crushing yeah. every time. Yeah. The thing that I found the most common as far as common experience is that you would have, let's just say the stereotypical, the wife has cancer. She comes in, the husband comes with her. He is obviously not comfortable being there he doesn't want to be there he has it's not that he has no interest in being there because he loves his wife but he's uh helpful not helpful (laughs) so scared scared and awkward his anxiety is actually making things worse for her she says when he goes to go get a donut i'd be happier if he just stayed home because i can relax and watch youtube and not you know, have him ask me a hundred times, am I okay? Do I want this? Do I want that? Because he, he feels he needs to do something. Right. And usually that conversation is, is kind of like a, a classic conversation. It's, you know, you having cancer is one part of the problem. That's your journey. Mm -hmm. Nobody can walk that path, but you, they can be next to your side, but they can't walk that path for you. And a lot of times, nothing personal to the person with the cancer, but 
they're immediately not thinking of you as much as they're thinking about them. Oh my God, what am I going to do without my wife? What am I going to do without the mother to my kids? Yeah. Um, it's all the clear and present you know, with, right in front of yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. It's, <clears throat> it winds up because humans are inherently egocentric. Um, and you know, you should explain, their concern you, for you should you explain that usually, to John, Jen, egocentric. Yeah. <laughs> egocentric. Yes. Can you say it slower? Egocentric. So yeah. as ego centric central, right? So humans are, and these are my opinions purely, we can get into a whole philosophical discussion about altruism and is there any real altruism, but you know, uh, that may, I may need a definition on that one. Well, we should probably drink some <laughs> wine before we do that, but <laughs> that's a different podcast. Um, but you know, when something happens to somebody I care about, I'm going to care about them, but then I'm also going to think about I'm connected to this person. How is their situation, health, finances, whatever going to impact me? And no man is an island, and nor should we be, um, because we are social creatures. So those interactions make it difficult for a cancer patient to manage their usual daily boring life before they had cancer. Right. Right. And it turns everything on its head because if you were the woman who did everything for everybody, that's not going to be happening. And if mm -hmm. you try and do that while you're in treatment, you're going to slow your own health recovery or maybe just completely work against it. And you're going to continue to enable. And if you do everything for everybody, you are enabling them, even if you love them. You know, they are when you're gone, what are they going to do? You know, is your. 20 year old kid still not going to know how to feed himself because he can't make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich is your daughter have going to have no idea how to do her laundry without turning everything yep. pink you know what's everybody, your husband going to do you right. know everybody grows up very quickly right well and rather so, i i always saw rather than enabling you're actually disabling them during that time because it, it i mean i again my own experience um shoot 13 years ago uh my wife went for her you know, her normal exam and she comes back home and she's in tears. And I said, what's up? And they said that they found a, a lump on her breast. And of course, I'm like, hey, don't worry about it. And of course, I'm terrified in the inside. And I'm like, hey, don't worry about it. My kids were young. My oldest was in, mm -hmm. I don't even remember, maybe like fourth grade or fifth grade. And um, she has a strong family history of cancer, which plays into it as well. And... Mm -hmm. um, you know, we go to the doctors, and I have to tell you, like you said, the doctors, the do the first doctor we went to see was so, I would say, robotic. Like, just came in and was like, um, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, and uh, you know, but don't worry about it. Uh, I would not worry until we get the results. It, you, it, it's the most horrifying feeling when you walk out of there because that that space of the of 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 the unknown in your brain about, I got it. Like you just think about, mm -hmm. I got it. There's no way I don't have it. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, she went through her treatments. Um, it turned out to be benign, but you still have to go every six months and get rechecked and treatment. Especially with the family history. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, um, it, you know, the hardest discussion that she had with me was one night she's sitting there and she said, you have to promise me if anything happens to me and I die, that whoever you marry and bring into this house, 
<laughs> is going to take care of my kids. I don't want her to abuse my. And I'm like, could you please not? Like, let's not have this discussion. You're getting yeah. yourself so worked well, up for no reason. She's being proactive. Kudos to her for that. Yeah, and, <laughs> you know? and it was again like a, a true awakening where, yeah. as you said, like you know, we depended on her. I mean, my wife is truly the anchor to 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 our Titanic, and without her, everything truly fails, even till today. So um, I agree with you a thousand percent. Like it, it, we we take a lot of things for granted and we don't realize until a crisis hits and then you start panicking over it. And some people, they can rise and become better out of it. And other people, they, they, they just fail miserably. I think that's, you know, some individuals are more fragile than others in certain areas. And I think one of the biggest things that I try and impart to my participants in my classes is, you know, let, since you've been in my classes, cause you've got cancer or you had cancer or you have cancer again, you have a couple big choices to make about your mindset. And I find that the biggest game is the one up here in your head. If you lose this game, everything is gone. So this is the reason why people like Stephen Hawking could do what he did from a wheelchair for 70 years because he kept this game going, even though his body failed. So, and they do have studies that say that, you know, your attitude actually does make a difference in your recovery. I usually just keep it simple and, and say, uh, let cancer refine you, not define you. You know, and, go ahead. I'm sorry. And that's actually something that you can use for any life trauma. Um, you know, if you let the thing that happened to you define you, you have now put limitations on yourself. You've marked out the edge of that circle where that thing defined you. If you let it refine you, you can take the best out of the worst situation and you have new skills to move forward with another situation that maybe had nothing to do with what initially traumatized you. So That's that seems to be the two types of people that I meet, the ones that are refined by cancer. And then you have the ones who are defined by cancer and they are not to malign Susan Komen, but they're the ones wearing all the pink and wearing all the ribbons and doing all the walks and wear all the t-shirts to say, I'm a cancer survivor. And, you know, that becomes part of their identity. If that gets them through, great. I don't necessarily know that that's probably the best way to deal with things, but I'm not them. Uh, so I try and encourage my people to get refined, not defined. That's beautiful. That's actually a beautiful definition. Yeah. That is awesome. And that while you were good. saying that, the one thing that came to my mind is that also depending upon what attitude they have goes along with the family, you know, because, and, and, and the loved ones, because obviously, you know, I mean, you guys know both my parents had cancer and, and my mom was, she just kept telling us she was sick. She hid it from us, you know, and here as you know, her that's son old school, and daughter, that's, that's old school treatment. Yeah. Like yeah. But the work, you know, and, I, and I, and I say this with all the love in my heart. The funny part was my mom was, basically a hypochondriac um all my life and then all of a sudden she hid this from us so like even when she when she was you know 
getting ready to pass, we, my sister and I were just like, we were shell shocked because we didn't know what was going on where my dad, we knew what was going on. He said, I'm going to fight it. And he fought it to literally the very last second. Um, and you know, it was two different types of feelings from it. You know, the one where we were shocked and surprised by my mom. And then it took us a while to realize that that was probably the bravest way that she could have done it. And my dad was brave from the onset and fought to the very end. But that makes sense. If she was a hypochondriac, it actually makes sense because she was probably hyper-focused on you and your sister and not affecting you guys with what she was going through and worried about that. So it kind of makes sense if you think about it from that aspect. Yeah. Well, it is a way of seizing control. I mean, either way, you're going to, you get to seize control. You either decide you're going to fight it. You decide I'm tired of fighting it and I want whatever quality of life I'm going to have rather than do another surgery or another whatever and figure out what your percentages are on that. And if you're comfortable with that, then do that. Um, Or, you know, keep it to yourself. So we all know. With that being said, have you ever hypnotized John? I've not. Hmm. Yeah, I want to talk about hypnotize. Like, what was it? Like, how did you learn it? Is it, it's not an online class, right? Anyway, yeah, no, it it definitely <laughs> was an online class, and um, and I did a series of classes. It was weeks and weeks and weeks of training in North Jersey under a, a guy named Dr. Jamie Feldman, and uh, and then beyond that, like all of my continuing ed credits, you know, I just try and learn something new all the time. And it's, it's a fascinating field. I think, again, this is, this is the brain, you know, the the brain is where the game is at. And we are the most amazing unlimited creatures. And we are incredibly chained down by our own psyche all at the same time. Yeah. So becoming that boundless mind is something that, um, you know, it's, it's almost like, it's almost like a game, you know, because your subconscious really wants you to be happy. Right. And it's always going to do the best to make you happy and safe, make you feel happy and safe, even if you're not really happy or safe. Well, it's, but, it's funny because yeah. we made, you know, Sam asked, did you ever hypnotize John? You did give me a recording for oh, right. yeah. relaxation. Um, yeah. And that was amazing because you listen to that while you go to sleep every night. And that was just like, I wake up and you're like, oh. Like and it was funny because then one night I I didn't fall asleep because it, I think you said it so like I don't know maybe you you did a special chant or whatever it is that you do or put a special word in there because I, I fall asleep at the same spot uh-huh. every time <laughs> so one night I was like I'm not falling asleep I I want to hear the rest of it like and I tried to stay I don't think I to this day I probably listened to it like fifty times I I don't know what that is do not listen to it while you're <laughs> operating <laughs> right. <you know? laughs> Yeah. Like, John, do you listen to it while you're at work? Huh? Do you listen to it while you're at work? Because you sometimes fall asleep at work. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's frowned upon, man. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> now, you have you have an, an, an and this is what I love about people: their paths, how they how they how they get to places where they're at, where they've been. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, you're making that, that thing all over the place. And, <laughs> and, you know, even when I listen to, um, my beautiful and incredibly, um, easy on the eyes, uh, co-host over here, Sam, he's got a very, um, yeah, he's got a very, uh, uh, a path 
a different path too. You would be surprised to find out that, you know, he was such things as a as a, a awesome DJ in demand, you know, stuff like that. So it's it's things like like that 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 make me curious. So you go and you have the massage. You you do farming. I, I mean, I know your family came. You came from a, a family of farmers. You go into hypnotist, and then you write a book. <laughs> Well, yeah. How long did it take you to write that book? It took about nine months, which is about uh, a pregnancy, which is kind of what it felt like because it really was <laughs> my, my child. When I was into it, I was totally into it. And I was doing it for like hours and hours and hours a night. I was writing. Um, but, you know, the real reason why I did that was because um, I am a great starter. I'm a great organizer. I'm an ideas girl for a very long time. I wasn't known for actually finishing anything. Like I dropped out of college. Then I went back and finished. Um, you know, I started, you know, this career, then I got bored, then I went and did this. And so I, I'm a Sagittarius. And so, uh, if you believe any of the, of the astrological brouhaha, then you would probably understand that Sagittarians are all over the board, mm -hmm. all they are, they're considered a uh, mutable sign. So we can be chameleons and uh, identify with a lot of different people, fit into a lot of different situations. But what that allows us to do is mostly BS our way through large chunks of our life <laughs> and, um, and not finish a lot. So I thought, well, let me tinker around, you know, with this idea. And I had some friends who were in theater and they write plays and things like that. I was talking to one of them one night and I said, how are you, how is it Kate? You know, how do you manage to write, sit there and actually write out a whole play? Like I can't even focus for two seconds to get six words in a row and, you know, on a piece of paper. And they challenged me. They said, I'm going to hang up from the phone right now. You write me a thousand words or something write me what's right you know just make something up and send it to me and, and i'll take a look at it and we'll see if you actually have the wherewithal to do this he said because i've known you for a long time and i know you can write so so i went ahead and I, you know i got an idea i had a vision in my head and so i wrote down you know whatever however many words it was sent it to them and they're like Oh my God, I have so many questions. Why did they think this? Why did they do this? How did this happen? You got to, you, you know, there's a whole book here. And I thought, well, maybe there is. And so I just expounded on that one scene and I figured out how the person got to that point from here and how they finished up after there. And it played out like a movie in my head and I just kept writing as fast as I could. That's but, pretty awesome. Being said, yeah. First books are easy. Second books, not so easy. Yeah, you're you're you're, you're working on the second book, right? Uh, I take a little break from the second book. It's still up here in in the old noggin, but um, I have plans for it to be a three parter. Um, I know how I want the third book to be, and the third book would actually be really easy to write, kind of like the first book. The middle part is the sticky part because that's where you learn how people go bad. Um, and there's also a lot of, um, you know, mental health situations in there, which I want to give, you know, 
adequate respect to. And, you know, if you've got a book, you have kind of a platform to make some statements about the situation of mental health in our society today, which we largely ignore as Americans. We really don't pay any attention to that. But in I Europe, I, I, Europe I, they pay attention to it. Um, we don't hear I, I, I think it, it matters where, right? Um, again, I've been working in behavioral health for a long time from a cultural standpoint. In the Middle East, we believe that, uh, you know, you could pray it away um, or you hide it away. Um, and a number of years ago, one of my friends, a uh, very close friend, he joined uh, Doctors Without Borders and he went to Thailand and the pictures he sent back of people that were mentally ill, the way they were being treated, they would literally put them in a small like dog cage and keep them there. And um, it was because they, they were violent and they didn't know what to do with them, so they just locked them up. Um, it, psychiatry's come a long way. It was always seen as you know an evil thing. There's an evil spirit in you. If you remember many years ago, they would drill mm -hmm. holes in people's heads to let the evil come out. And yes. uh, it, it's... It's come a long Ice way. Ice pick lobotomies. Yeah, yeah. It's come a long way. It's now, an excellent, excellent book, actually. If you ever get a chance to read it, there's a book called My Lobotomy. And it's written by a guy who survived one of those ice pick lobotomies where they go in at the very corner of the eye near the lacrimal ducts. And they basically just kind of shrivel around in there with an ice pick. Um, and he survived it. He went on this journey to find out exactly what they did to him and how he overcame it. And it's, it's an actually an excellent book. So are your, time. are your books fictional? Are they? Uh, the first, the a part is fiction. The one I'm working on right now is kind of a short memoir of the time that we've had on this farm. We've been here just under five years. Uh, and the working title is farm is an F word. Which yes. I say a lot around here, yes. <laughs> depending on what's yeah. happening. I, I, I don't curse. I, I want to write a book, and uh, it's going to be a mystery. Uh, it's going to be called My Name is John. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like a 10-part 10, a 10 series book. Yeah, John from Mongolia. <laughs> <laughs> that country, that, it, that, that city in Italy. I think um, everybody's got a book in them, actually, because we have such a breadth of human experience. And I have no idea what it's like to be you, Sam. I mean, I've listened to your podcast and I've learned a little bit about you. And, you know, I have friends with Middle Eastern background and, you know, I'm sure there's some overlap there, but nobody has lived the life you have. Right. She's and saying you should write a book. Yeah, absolutely. I so, think everybody's got a book in. Yeah, I, I agree. I, the, I think the problem with uh, writing books is exactly what you said. It's you you have to get into in that mindset, right, where you have to sit down and kind of organize your thoughts. And um, many years ago, um, when I I was a a professor of Fairleigh Dickinson, and um, my my dean came up to me. He said, "Listen, we want to start a a program on crisis management with all your experience." I want you to write a book. And I was like, that's great. And I publish your parish. And I started writing it and I'm like, this is hard work. This is not as easy as just like telling a story. Mm -hmm. um, and again, like kudos to you that you were able to put that together and kudos to you that you were able to put the spirit of what you want to express in it. Cause not every book really at the end of the whole story, can you walk away and say, 
I, I got what I wanted out of it. My my young my younger daughter, my youngest daughter, um, when she was in seventh grade, and John, we got to have her on one day. She's like, she's a, a, a pep. She she wrote a book on schizophrenia, and the <laughs> title was Schizophrenia, right? And when I read it, I got scared. I was like, where where did you get? She's like, well, I I hear you talk about where you work and. And I'm like, oh my god, I got to keep quiet. <laughs> but but it no, was a... honestly, it's good that you did because, again, those things help inform the people around you. And sharing that experience definitely gives them a a quick glance glimpse into an area where they would usually never look. And in fact, the second book, a lot of what's going on in the system. And it's, it revolves around a hospital system and a particular patient and whatnot. Some of those stories I got from my friend who was in crisis management down there uh, in North Carolina. And he would tell me stories. And I'd be like, you can't make this beep up because it's truly insane. Mm -hmm. The things that he's seen, sometimes they're laughable. Sometimes they're horrible. Um, and he was always the first guy on the scene, whether you, you know, slip and broke your hip at 85 or you were a 12 year old that was gang raped. Like he was the guy that saw you first. Yeah. So, and uh, uh, Jennifer, yes, Jennifer, it was a pleasure having you on. Pleasure. Pleasure was all mine. There's there's just touched the tip of the iceberg. We, we absolutely did. Yeah. I mean, time flies really when um, we're talking to interesting people such as yourself, mm -hmm. uh, as many other people people in the world there's a lot more than just a, a half hour or an hour or a 24 hour story so i'd love to have you come back on and talk to us more about your farming adventures i think that would be awesome yes but it's always an adventure sam believe me now <laughs> you have you, you guys have an event coming up correct by we that would be my husband and i yes um it's actually uh, the hubby's adventure it is the Philadelphia Area Gaming Expo to be held the first week of January at Oaks, Pennsylvania. And uh, you can find them on Facebook at Page, P-A-G-E. Um, and it's going to be all kinds of uh, role-playing games. Some of it, most of it is probably going to be D&D. Okay. Which is like, if you're a D&D nerd, there's every edition. There's like first through fifth edition. If you watch The Adventures of Vox Machina on Netflix, no. that is D&D fifth edition. D&D um, is in Dunkin' Donuts? Dungeons and Dragons. Oh. Dungeons and Dragons. Not Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> Not Dunkin' Donuts, no. That's just D&D. Yeah. D &D. yeah. yeah this, um, is the, this is the first one, correct? This is the first one, yeah. Right. All right. Well, yeah, well, we're, we're very excited. It's the... Uh, I think it's going to be a great time and there's going to be a lot of people there that helped create the Dungeons and Dragons world. Um, Gary Gygax, who created Dungeons and Dragons, has actually passed on, but the guys that did the artwork for the books, the ones that created the character rules and all those sorts of things, a lot of them are going to be there. And I'm going to get to meet a writer by the name of Elaine Cunningham, uh, so I'll be picking her brain. Good. Yeah, she uh, she's written books all about a specific type of uh, character group called the Harpers. So maybe my next fiction book will be in the D and D world. I don't know. Hmm. Interesting. Very. You interesting. never know. Yeah. Well, 
we're definitely going to have to have you on, right? You're going to have to let us know how farming's going and how the adventure goes in the D and D world. All right. You just I, I, really want me to bring you some more banana jam, don't you? That is, she makes really good banana jam. Ooh. She brings us banana jam. Yeah, we Ooh. we just eat it up. Yeah, we, yeah, we don't grow it. bananas, but I do make a banana jam, and yeah. it's pretty. Tasty. Yeah, the fig the fig one Carol eats. So, yeah. All right. I'll write it down. I got your orders. All right. All right. Well, thank you, Jen. Um, we appreciate you. Um, I it hope was you a enjoyed. pleasure, guys. Thank you so much for having me on. This was you're a blast. Well, you're welcome. Uh, see, that's a really good guest right there. Informative. You learn things, right? Very, very special person. Um, I'm still kind of in awe about how she takes care of people that might be in the last stages of their life, and she comforts them to this way. Their journey, one one side or the other, ends in the best way possible for them. They're very special person. You, you know, and, and I, I really feel that um, people like Jen are overlooked um, because, you know, they're, they're systematically put in this place where it's their job. It's this is what they're supposed to do. It doesn't mean that they don't have feelings. It doesn't mean that they're any better than us. It just means that they're doing a job that nobody else wants to do or is capable of doing. And I think that it just makes them a very strong individual. And, um, you know, if we could all take a little piece from from people like Jen's book and and put that in our everyday life, it would probably be pretty good. Um, really, like in, really, very cool person. I enjoyed yeah. talking to her. I can't wait to have her back on, especially after uh, the D and D for her to tell us how that all went. Yeah, yeah, and I think um, I think we're when we do the remote broadcast in Mongolia. Um, because um, they're winning. Apparently, there's a there's a, a giveaway, and if you win, um, you actually get to sit in with us and um, be in our podcast. Like the Mongolian villages are all in it. There, there. It's apparently there were a couple fights too. I'm not even sure, but um, there were coconuts flying everywhere. It was bad. Listen, um, we're, we're we're making it big time. I mean, now we found out that there's a connection with our. Korean fans out there, we this gotta is, we gotta have Jen back on. Yeah, it's funny. I got a I got a thing from um, Google uh, Master, and they said uh, Google Master. That, yeah, they said the the hashtag Korea went up like five million times because of us. Yeah, hmm. yeah. All right. Yeah. That and hashtag um, uh, Wi-Fi extender in a tree. I don't get it, but whatever. So <laughs> that's um, Bora that Bora. Bora, Bora. They're still hanging in there. They're, They're hanging, still in, hanging there. in there. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad for that Wi-Fi extender that you sent to them. Compliments of uh, Jersey Smarties. It's, uh, yeah, yeah. It's working out well. Yeah. Well, right. thanks, buddy. Thank you, everybody, for coming uh, and enjoying this wonderful broadcast. Yep. Jersey John, you want to? I'll bring us out with thanks for listening to Jersey Smarties, and everybody have a great day. Wait for it. On purpose. On purpose. Oh, thank you.